This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to Beyond Zero Emissions on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Uh, Tonight we've got a special on wind farms, and I've got Vivian Langford on the line to tell us all about it. Hi Viv, can you hear me? Yes, I'm here, Andy. How are you going? I'm good. It's fine in Sydney, beautiful sunny weather. Uh, We've got the same down here, actually. Yeah, that's a surprise. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't, but it was pretty rainy this morning, but yeah. What's on? shows on wind farms and I recorded it about two weeks ago when it was actually really cold. I think a couple of the people mentioned how cold they were in the show and windy and I, uh, I wanted to do come back to wind farms because we've just got to get on with building up the renewable energy resources in Australia. Only 17% of our energy comes from renewables mm. despite all those solar roofs. Half of that's hydro and I did an interview about five years ago which Roger found for me, it was in our archives, and it was 2012, I went up to a little town called Burua, and I met this guy called Paul Reardon, or I interviewed this man, a farmer called Paul Reardon. He was telling us how, oh, you know, he was going to get a couple of wind turbines on his farm and that would drought-proof the farm, and with the money from the wind turbines, he'd be able to de-stock a little bit, like not flog the land so much, and... Oh, many people phoned me up about that interview and they really liked what he said. It was a, you know, wonderful win-win situation. So I thought I'd get in contact with him Something again. from the vault, yeah. Yeah, but it was like one of the saddest things because when I phoned him up again, the, there is a wind farm going on in that place, Borrower, New South Wales, yep. but it's not as many turbines as they had originally planned. There was a lot of opposition. There was a lot of people from... Landscape guardians who, you know, put up a huge fuss in the town about it. And um, can you and see also, that from the Hume Highway? I don't know. Uh, it, you know, it's off. You no, know, it's off the main highway. Borrowa. It's a little town somewhere near, between Crookwell and Tamora. Now, you know, sort of the middle part of New South Wales. But it's a very good wind resource there. It's just got gentle hills and um, not too far from Canberra, really. Sort of in that area. Yeah, I feel like I drove past. I've seen something from the road up there. Yeah, and well, there I love is... going out Warbra, just past Ballarat and seeing the turbines. Well, and... Warbra's a big established one, and there's a big established one near Canberra, and there's a, oh, a lot of them coming up all over the place. But I wanted to hear about what this thumb happened to it. And, and when I spoke to Paul again this year, which listeners will hear the two interviews, my old interview with him, when he was all, you know, hopeful about it, and now he, it turns out, well, listeners will hear how it turns out. I think it's quite a sad story. And so that's just one case study, and I thought it's worth people understanding how hard it is still to get a really, you know, there's not a lot of um, impetus and not a lot of stimulation to incentive to do it mm. in wind farms in Australia. So <clears throat> they they've falter a bit. But then I uh, had heard that recently, you know, there's much more money and there's something like, um, I think the Clean Energy Finance Corporation told me there's $5 billion worth of wind farms in the pipeline, you know, projects yep. that have already been approved and have financed, really, yeah, so $5 billion. Um, and so that that's good. So I talked to Andrew Bray, he's the head of the Australian Wind Alliance and 
um, there's something they started out of Ballarat, and Andrew will give us the latest on that. You know, uh, they've been through the doldrums, wrong signals coming out of Canberra, but now things are moving. So yeah, that's awesome. the positive side of it. And then we'll end with another farmer who I like this uh, farmer. We spoke to him once before with Farmers for Climate Action, but he's really um, now also with the wind alliance, and he's. Uh, He's going to tell us about the wind turbines on his place. He's actually getting them up, which is very, very good for Crookwell. It's called the Crookwell 2 project. So I think, you know, we're talking about it now, one farm here and one farm there, and seems to be slow compared to Europe or China. You know, I've seen videos from China where, you know, it seems like something marvellous, you know, hills and hills and hills covered with wind turbines and and, uh, cattle grazing underneath them and very you know, big transition happening there, but it'll happen here too. And so I thought this program's a little bit the history of it, showing how hard it has been for some people, disappointments and setbacks, but ever onwards. And it's people like all of the people I've interviewed tonight who've really put their efforts into it and their intelligence into it, and it'll happen. So I hope listeners enjoy that. The first speaker will be Andrew Bray. Sounds great. Let's check it out. Yeah, thanks. All right. Thanks, Viv. Bye-bye. The Australian Wind Alliance is a leading community-based organisation which started in Ballarat, Victoria. They bring together business and communities who want more wind energy for Australia. Andrew Bray is the National Coordinator and I want him to give us the big picture. So welcome, Andrew. Hi, Vivian. Tell us uh, about the... I'd like to, you to fill us in with some just pretty dry facts and figures but also your vision. So... I, what I've worked out is Australia um, has apparently about 17% of renewable energy at, at the moment feeding in, and half of that is from hydropower. I'd like to know what percentage comes from wind farms, and then what is the potential? So we now have around 80 wind farms operating at the moment, and they supply somewhere between 5 and 6%, or in 2016 they supplied about 5 to 6% of Australia's total energy. And that's about 30% of the, the renewable energy that was produced in that year. But at the moment, we're in the middle of you know what you'd really con- call a construction boom in uh, for wind farms, and there are something like 16 projects totaling about 2,000 megawatts. So we're going to see uh, something like a 30% increase in the amount of wind that we have installed over just the next couple of years. So that's that's going to make a big difference. And so we'll start to see wind producing something more like bit over 10% of Australia's energy by um, probably 2020. Where are the best places for future wind farms? I know people go out seeking, you know, wind resources. Uh, the Roaring Forties down in the south, I think that's probably why the South Australian wind farms in the Tasmanian area is good for that. But where in Australia are the best resources? Well, certainly on the eastern seaboard, the main areas are really follow the Great Dividing Range. So you, you see the better wind resources, you know, in places that have a bit more altitude. So, yeah, the the wind comes off the, the Great Australian Bight and, and tears into South Australia. And, that's, and you're right, that, that has really some of the best wind resources close to populations in the world. And then from there, southwest Victoria, um, across the divide up into New South Wales and then, then up to Queensland. So and, and Tasmania is very good. Some parts of southwest WA are also very good. I mean, Australia has some of the best wind resources in the world. 
and and in fact we're only harnessing you know a, a tiny proportion of those currently so we, we certainly could be doing a lot more but um, one of the interesting things that that's now happening with the maturing of wind turbine technologies is that wind farms don't they don't need the windiest spots in the country to, to still be very efficient and produce quite a lot of power and uh, new machines which um, have much bigger rotors actually work quite effectively um, in places that you know probably only five years ago people would have said oh that's a kind of average wind spot yeah. but now that average wind spot can actually be a really um, really effective place for a wind farm. And does it matter if it's I mean I imagine it's better it's cheaper if it's closer to the grid? Well that that is true that is true but I mean there are places so for instance there's a new wind farm being built out near Broken Hill at the moment. There's some very good wind resources out there uh, in North Queensland. There's, there's some quite good wind resources a few hundred kilometres from, uh, from the coast. And, you know, I think before long there's going to be some pretty strong arguments to want to build some much, much larger grid infrastructure out to those places and put in some, you know, really large installations that you probably wouldn't put closer to populations. But, yeah. but they could you know, harness that wind and uh, send it to the places where you need to use it. Yeah, well, look, the wind resource is one thing, but the policy environment is the other ingredient. And I was at a conference recently, Energy Summit, done by the Fin Review in Sydney, and straight afterwards, like about four days afterwards, the new uh, National Energy Guarantee was announced, and there was no word of it at this conference, and there also were no wind or solar kind of companies there, and all the other incumbent, you know, energy producers were. And Turnbull said on television that the clean energy target um, was going to be left behind. They were not going to go into that. And the new energy guarantee, he said, was going to get rid of subsidies. Now, number one, I didn't know that the previous target for renewable energy was really a subsidy. And number two, I haven't heard of all the fossil fuel subsidies being cut out. So what do you think? No, no, that's absolutely right. Look, I really think it's an incredibly irresponsible move to be knocking aside the months of work that went into the, the Finkel review. And then, you know, if you, if you think back to just a, a couple of months ago, we had what was pretty much unanimous support from, you know, all the way from Labor state governments through to environment groups to business groups, you know, to the Aluminium Council. It could, the support couldn't have been much broader um, for a clean energy target that, uh, that Alan Finkel came up with in, in his report. You know, six months of consultation, of policy refinement, uh, and, you know, people were on board with it and they thought, well, we can make it work. We've got different visions about, um, you know, the emissions reduction side of it, but nevertheless, we can make it work. And by dropping that, and bringing in this national energy guarantee, which at the moment is is, is literally nothing more than an eight-page mm. thought bubble, mm. and a few you know a few seemingly good ideas. We really need to go back to square one, and we just don't have time for this kind of delay and and the waste of waste of people's energy. Yes, and I I sort of imagine big business as kind of like a skittish horse. You know, they're likely to go offshore any minute. They're likely to gallop away and just say we won't invest. Yeah, look, I think to be honest, the the well, when it comes to investing in energy, renewable energy uh, is the place where businesses want to invest, and there's a clear appetite for for businesses to want to stay here and make it work. But you know, but they can't they can't wait around forever. 
And so that's why we need some policy certainty as, as soon as we can. And look, the economics are, are just so much there for renewables now. Wind farms are the cheapest forms of new energy you can build in Australia. Solar is large-scale solar, is not far behind. And even when you take into account the cost of firming up that supply with, say, batteries or pumped hydro and that kind of thing, it still comes in cheaper than than a new gas or a coal plant. So. I was just going to ask you, are they those pumped hydro storage batteries, let's call them batteries really, are, mm. they, are they going to make wind farms a lot more effective in delivering energy? I mean, does that get over the problem of intermittency? Because I, I do think there is a community perception. It's not just business. It's communities do actually think they follow that line Well, the sun doesn't shine all the time and the wind doesn't blow all the time. And yet I think wind and solar sort of complement each other, don't they, in some places? Uh, well, that is certainly true. If you look at, uh, for instance, a new project which is planned, for, uh, when in fact it's about to go ahead in um, North Queensland, the Kennedy, Kennedy Energy Park, that will have wind, it'll have solar and it'll have batteries and they expect that that will producing, that'll be producing power about 80% of the time. So so that's, you know, as close to baseload as you, you would want and it'll be 100% clean energy and it'll be very reliable and, and the, the trick with that place is that it actually has a very, the wind and the solar resources there are very complementary so you essentially get you get your solar during the day and you get your wind at night and then some of those gaps in between are filled up by the battery. So so that that's gonna make sense on an on an economic scale there and this it'll certainly be the case elsewhere as well. Okay, well what do you think is the way forward? The I think fossil fuel industry is perhaps got its back against the wall now, but they're still putting money into preserving their business. And there's a, a public, like as I said at this summit, they were heavily represented. And there's a public perception that is easily whipped up. You know, for example, the South Australian blackout got everybody hyped up about that. And people think that solar and wind are unable, until battery storage becomes cheaper, unable to really guarantee reliable energy. So what do you think is the strategy for groups like you, uh, industry groups and NGOs, like, you know, sort of just climate groups, to um, change this reality quickly in the time we've got because it's the urgency of four degrees of warming. I had a Bangladeshi speaker the other day, the floods in Bangladesh. He says there are climate criminals. He was pointing, he told me the names of the company. He said these fossil fuel incumbents are climate criminals. Four degrees of warming is unlivable. It's already unlivable in Bangladesh. So uh, what's your strategy? Like I think it has to be accelerated. And what's your thought? Yeah, look, I think the, the, I mean, I absolutely hear what you say and, and I think Bangladesh for a long time has been the kind of place that's incredibly threatened, its very existence is threatened by, by climate change and, and, you know, if, if Australia thinks it's got a refugee problem now, you know, we can wait for another 20 years and carry on polluting as we are and mm. then, we'll, then we'll really see, you know, what climate refugees look like. Yeah, it's potentially a very, very dangerous situation. But nevertheless, I think in Australia... You know, the, we do have to convince the public of of the economic merits of renewable energy. I think there is a sense that the, the system is not delivering what it needs to, and and it is way more expensive than it needs to. And that the answer to that is is to find the cheapest sources of energy going forward. And I I just think you know politicians who pretend that there's a big reliability problem that needs to be fixed with more coal plants. You know, I think we just need to move past that and, and we need to argue the toss and make sure that people understand how false those kind of solutions are. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. I think you've given us a good overview of that. Thanks very much. Thanks, Vivian. That was Andrew Bray from the Australian Wind Alliance. Um, Viv, would you like to tell us a bit about what's on the show today? Yes, Beth, I'm very excited about today's program because I've actually been to the places where these people are speaking from. I happened to be up in New South Wales in the country and I saw this little, um, came across this little town called Burrawa. It's beautiful wheat country surrounded by rolling hills and we stopped for tea and sandwiches and noticed across the road in Burua Main Street, a community information centre devoted to a proposed wind farm at a nearby place called Rugby. And then several doors down on that main street, there was another little shop front which was devoted to the Burua Landscape Guardians. So I thought this is a town at the start of the process to get some sort of social licence for wind farms. You know, there's a bit of division there. And we hope to use this town as a case study, interviewing local people today and then coming back to talk to them as they go through the gateway process set up by the New South Wales government to sort of facilitate community agreement to wind farms if, if that's what's going to happen. And I hope that we don't have to wait too long to see this story out. So the first person we'll talk to today is local farmer Paul Reardon. And he was one of a group who approached the wind farm developers because they realised that in that area, they um, on the map you can see that is where the wind resource is. So thank you very much for talking to us. Look, I know a lot of farmers need to have some sort of off-farm income to keep going. I know if you know a husband and wife couple, sometimes the wife goes to work in the hospital or the man might have to go and do other work to keep the farm going, especially in drought. But can you tell me, was this the main reason that the farmers with you, that group, approached Windlab and Repower? I think any farmer that's been through what we've been through, 12 or more years of drought, we're looking for any source of, all, of alternate income. Yeah. And the wind farm idea was uh, something that came to, to light and we as a group decided to run with it. Well, what made you choose a partnership with this particular wind farm developer and are you happy with the way they have engaged in such a lot of community consultation, even to having this sort of community information centre in the town? Yeah, no, we're very happy. Um, we, the, the core group uh, that we formed, we decided to act as one, so any decisions that we made uh, would be made as a collective. And we negotiated for well over 12 months with four different developers and uh, during that process, we had a lot of input into the contract that we eventually signed. And so far, we've been very happy with that contract. Uh, we have no fears at this stage about what we've signed up for. And the, uh, the consultation with the community was always going to be part of the process. We, we knew that. We were aware of it. And uh, what we weren't aware of was the opposition that was going to come from the Landscape Guardians. Mm. Well, listeners to this program could probably tell you that, that that is often what happens because we've done a few stories like this and it seems to be, you know, a, a small group of people sort of seeding this information or this, this feeling and so you do have to um, deal with it and I think it's very good to deal with it in that very reasonable way of having community um, access to the information. Could you just tell me a little bit more about the contracts? For example, when the wind farms have... Uh, need to be sort of um, demolished or a new one put up or, you know, at the end of their sort of natural life. Has, is it something in the contract that they, the company will actually take them away and put up a new one or take them away and 
clean the spot yeah, up? Yeah, it was, it was definitely part of our concerns and we went to a lot of trouble to ensure that as far as we were concerned, we have it written into our contract uh, that at the end of the life of the wind farm uh, that the company will pay for its demolition. There will be funds put aside uh, during the process to ensure that that can happen. Uh, so I have no fears that uh, I presumably won't be around when it's time to pull it down. <laughs> no. But uh, my family won't have to pay anything to have it removed. Because mm, I know that was one of the concerns people have said to me, that they thought the contracts didn't include that. Well, when the Rugby Wind Farm team came to study the feasibility of your area, they found that your particular farm could only take six turbines. Can you tell me why was that? Yeah, the area of land that I have that I thought was perhaps most suitable for turbines, um, a little bit rougher, the hills definitely a bit higher. Um, they found a wedge-tailed eagle's nest out there oh, yeah. and they also found an owl. Um, so the ecological studies basically had that area removed from the uh, proposed turbines. I imagine you were disappointed you couldn't have wind turbines there, but what did you? What did that make you feel about the sort of integrity of the way they're working? Oh, as far as their studies are concerned, um, I could perhaps ask that they do further investigations, etc., etc., mm. uh, in the vain hope that they mightn't see them next time they go out. Oh, no. But uh, no, no, Ria, you know, you've got to live in the real world, and yeah. uh, they're there, so uh, it's something that... Uh, we have had to live with, we protect. Mm. Um, yeah, we are all, uh, I think most farmers uh, definitely want to see these things around. Yeah. Uh, as part of nature and we don't, don't want to uh, see the area uh, or species that should be there, mm. not there anymore. Mm. Well, there seems to be a bit of fear in Borrower at the moment that the turbines might catch fire or that during a bushfire they might stop the planes which can dump water on the flames from flying low. But I know that you are actually in the Country Fire Association. And so how would you answer those fears? Yeah, I'm, I'm a group captain within the uh, New South Rural Fire Service. Mm -hmm. So fire ground management uh, is part of my portfolio. Uh, I have no fears at all um, with some pre-incident planning. Um, we will be able to have the turbines clamped during a fire so that they won't be turning. Um, and when that happens, um, the pilots will obviously be able to fly a lot closer than otherwise uh, they would be able to with the, the downwind turbulence. Mm. And if the pilot is of the opinion that he doesn't want to go there, I'm not going to second-guess his judgment. The mm. pilot is the final one that has to say on what he does. Mm. It's a hazard, there's no doubt about that, having a, a turbine sticking up in the air. Mm. But providing he can see them, he knows where they are. Yeah. It's just part of what he has to do as far as uh, his escape route or his his flight path as to where he has to go. Uh, and he should be able to do all that before he goes in for a bombing run. And so I have no fears about that at all. And from the firefighting point of view, will the um, fact that the wind farms are there, the wind farm is there, will that mean that they put in, say, more access roads? Oh, most definitely. Some of the country that we have, uh, it would take us well over an hour to gain access to some of this more remote country. Um, so in the case of a lightning strike and things like that, yeah. uh, by the time we get there, the fire is, uh, is underway. 
when these roads go through the access roads, that same trip will take us 15 minutes uh, maximum. So from that point of view, we're, it's opening up the country to give us ready access. And the roads will also, if, if necessary, give us somewhere to actually propose a backburn off. Oh, yes. That type thing. So but, it's going to make a big difference. Oh, we see it as a positive, definitely not a negative. Mm. And we live in a reasonably frequented lightning prone area. Oh, yes. And I think um, the turbines sticking up in the air, they're going to attract the lightning and take it to ground before it hits trees or something like that and causes fire. So if anything, it's going to reduce the, the fire that we, the fires that we now have. Gosh, these are our untold advantages that I hadn't even thought oh, of. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> well, maybe it's a bit much though to expect local people who are not hosting the turbines to just be happy that Rugby Wind Farm will help us meet the renewable energy targets and maybe help with climate change, or certainly help with climate change um, efficiencies. So do you think there's somewhere, you know, you must, you're in the town, you must talk to lots of people. I imagine people are grumbling about it if they're not going to host one of the turbines. Is there some way to stop the wind farm creating a feeling of, you know, winners and losers? Actually, if... there are very few people grumble to me about it personally, uh-huh. about mm-hmm. not being part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously people that are living close or, or don't like the look of the turbines. Mm. I can understand, um, you know, you, if you don't like it, that's fair enough. I have no objections to that. That's your personal opinion. Mm. Uh, but um, once, as far as the reducing the cost of electricity, etc., mm. um, once a turbine is, or once a wind farm has been built, and the people that invest in that, um, they're getting a return from it to get their money back. But once it's actually up and running and the costs of keeping it up and running as far as maintenance and the, the people that are employed to do that, mm. it's the cheapest source of power that we have. So coal, etc., etc., can't compete with that uh, because there's no renewable costs. So in the long term, people could actually face the fact that they are actually going to get lower electricity bills. Definitely. South mm. Australia has proven that already. Mm. Uh, so the wholesale price of electricity since they started to introduce wind farms in South Australia has has reduced. Oh. So um, I think the runs are on the board yeah. uh, to say that it's um, it's stopping the price of electricity rising more than it otherwise would. Yeah. Well, I think the runs are on the board, but people don't seem to be reading the board. As no, it were. that is exactly right. Mm. I agree. Yeah, and there's a lot of misinformation being put out there. Mm. Um, and if people are not that interested, which generally the public is not. Mm, well, fair enough. They're not aware of it. Yeah. No, that's right. Because I, I met someone, I went up to um, Crookwall to see the earlier um, wind farm that I think was the first grid-connected one, and people up there said, oh, well, you know, if only the people in the upper Lachlan Shire would get a lower electricity rate. And I said to them, well, I think it's probably across the board that, you know, statewide the electricity will be lower. They said, oh, well, you know, we'd like some advantage. Yeah. but. And, and I suppose that's a fair comment if it fits your mm. category, but you have to draw a line somewhere. Mm. Like the, the people within the Crookle Shire, uh, they're close, some people are closer to the rugby wind farm than the village of Borua. Mm. So where do you draw the boundary fence? Mm, exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, look, I, I'm hoping that this project does go ahead and um, because my main thing is about slowing down climate change, which is a very frightening prospect and one way that I've spoken to other people about is revegetating the land, rehydrating the land, trying to 
reforest parts of Australia and restoring farmland, which has been overstocked or eroded. And I'd like to know, you know, if it all comes to fruition and, you know, you have this extra income from your uh, wind farm, what, what's your dream for the land around you? Would it take pressure off your farm to stop? Most definitely. Um, we made a decision years ago to give our five children a boarding school education and that had an, a big effect on what I was hoping to be able to do at the farm during that period. We then went into 15 years of drought, so I have pushed my land far too hard and I would like the opportunity to regenerate uh, and bring it back to what I was hoping it would be. Mm. And uh, during the last two years since the, the drought broke, I've planted in excess of 2,000 trees on my place. Mm. Um, so uh, I, I think I'm, yeah, I, I would like the opportunity to return it to uh, to what I was hoping it should be. Mm. And oh, definitely this, this income is going to give me that the ability to do that. Oh, I think that just is wonderful to tell it as clearly as that. Thank you very much, Paul. Well, thank uh, you for the thank, opportunity. Thank you. So that was thank Paul Reardon, who's a farmer at Borrower in New South Wales, who is one of the people who may have uh, wind turbines on his property. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Radio Show, Paul. You were a pretty strong group at Burrua back in 2012 when we spoke first, and I believe the wind farm will go ahead at Rye Park, but you won't be getting turbines on your place in the end. I guess there's no point in being bitter, but what did you learn from the experience? I think we were unfortunate that when we started our development, the New South Wales government and the federal government were not as well advanced in what they are hoping were the rules behind wind farms as they are now. And um, that was a major part of our problem, the, the process that we had with, with bureaucracy in getting across the line. Do you think the bureaucracy has become more streamlined now, making it easier? I think the rules they have in place now are more applicable to wind farms. A lot of the rules that were in place when we were negotiating with New South Wales government were based on the coal mining or uh, the gas industry. And they were trying to apply the same criteria there to uh, a wind farm process. And there is differences as chalk and cheese in what is required. Yes, and and gas would have a much greater impact on the land, you know, and then like wind turbines can be removed eventually if you want to. You can just uh, remove them. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. Uh, And and the damage that people are concerned about with gas fracturing and what goes on there, uh, particularly to the water table, that can come up miles and miles away and uh, we really don't know and I don't think hydrologists know uh, what the real damage, um, even though what they promise, um, I think they've got a long way to go to convince Mm. the general public that what they're saying is is accurate. Whereas the wind farm, okay, you've got a a turbine sitting up there for whatever number of years, uh, eventually it will be taken down and there might be a, a slab of concrete left on the ground, but even that could be removed if necessary. 
necessary. So uh, in time, it would disappear completely from the landscape. Yeah. Well, you know, you were caught up in a sort of period of history. I remember coming to Borowa and seeing in the cafe, you know, as I described, the first time one side of the road, no, a shop front that had all the advertising for the wind farm, how it was going to be at that time. And then the next door, the one all about this scary, scary thing of wind turbines on fire and dead birds everywhere. And I thought, oh, wow, this is like a battle zone here. And then I think you must have been caught up in that that period where they were very strong about it. And the wind, the uh, landscape guardians was one group. They were putting a lot of money and a lot of effort into anti-wind sentiment and feelings. And uh, I wonder how did they try to influence local people in your area? Their influence with local people, going back a step, uh, one of our members, he was offered some turbines Mm. and he decided that that wasn't enough. Uh, So he then went uh, completely in the opposite direction, member of a very wealthy family. And they joined the Guardians and uh, he uh, helped with the campaign against and a lot of the meetings that were held in Borua, supposedly Guardian or local meetings, were attended by the Guardians, and I attended a few, and I think I could probably count on one hand the number of families that were involved uh, were members of the Guardians uh, mm. in opposition. The rest of the crowd came not from within the Borua local government area. They were brought in, and some of those were uh, quite heated and quite radical, and they threw out a lot of misinformation, which, as members of the community to start with, were uh, concerned and didn't quite know whether to believe it or not. Uh, And I think time has proven that a lot of the information that they uh, put out was inaccurate. The members of the community that obviously knew what side I was on Mm. would approach me in the street or somewhere and just say, yeah, what's going on or what's really the truth of this? And you would explain some of their um, opinions that we justifiably disagreed with or or gave them another point of view. And the number that said, oh, I didn't realise that. And uh, I'm not saying they actually thought differently, but they definitely were starting to think differently to the way they... Yeah. they were thinking before. So it goes back to the old adage, if you throw enough mud, some of it eventually sticks. Yes, I'm wondering, like there were a lot of government inquiries at that time and I think um, was it Simon Chapman and people like that were exhaustively in getting all the health information they could to disprove that it, that it was a, such a hazard. But as you say, it sticks. I feel sorry for the, something to go down that path because it's not necessary. And, and so many in Europe, for example, they're so far ahead with having it. And the community shares in the benefit of the turbines. And, and it, even if people don't like the look of them, it is a necessary step on the path to moving away from the fossil fuel energy and, and maybe a transition, you know, maybe a, a hundred years when we have those and then there'll be another type of technology that won't won't affect people. And even uh, if some of the things that the Guardians were, were talking about turned out to be accurate, there are potentially engineering solutions to solve those. So I think you need to do the science. Mm. And the science at this stage hasn't been done to support their opposition. In the process, I'm just wanting to do this um, interview to to show people like a case study. So in your small town, this uh, wind farm proposal hit that that obstacle first, but then there's always a problem of uh, community consultation. Do you think the wind uh, developers, did they approach people in a clear enough way or were they conciliatory, were they patient with the community? How did they approach it? Did they have meetings as well? Uh, yeah, I think 
we, the people that we were working with at that time, uh, they went to a lot of trouble to consult with the community and that was the purpose for the shop front in Burua and they were paying people there for oh, quite a long time, six or 12 months to keep that shop open and, and have a representative there to um, just to show the flag or to talk mm. about it or mm. to answer any questions mm. that people came in and, and wanted to see what it was all about. What would you say is the best practice then that you've seen in, and you've heard about other communities? What will be the... where it has a very satisfactory outcome and not taking five years just in the consultation process? From the New South Wales government's point of view, they were trying to clean up the Act and set a standard that was consistent across the board. That has been done to some degree. Unfortunately... Our development ended up, with the help of the Guardians, in the middle of that. We were held up in changing the model and our development was revamped so many times it wasn't funny and that costs the developer money in doing that. It costs the developer but it costs you too. I imagine you're a, you're a working farmer, you've got sheep out there, you don't have too much time to be spending on it. What sort of wear and tear did it take on you? I suppose the core group, that a couple of us in the core group, put a lot of effort into it and it definitely took time and I'd hate to think of, uh, if I put a monetary figure on that, uh, what it would come to. So uh, I don't regret trying, but I just regret very much the timing yes. issue that we had and yeah. the, the fact that uh, the uh, governments were trying to work out what they should be doing given the opposition that they were facing from the coal industry at the time. And it wasn't just state government, the federal government was very much the same way, trying to find out where the renewables fit into the system. Some of that has definitely been clarified, and even though I think the uh, the federal government at present is uh, still trying to work out what it wants to do with renewable energy. Mm. Delay, uh, I'd say. I think they want to delay it. They are delaying it, that's exactly right. And, uh, and maybe that's part of the policy they've got behind mm. the scenes. Well, look, oh, Paul, I want to say to you, I think, I hope you don't regret it too much, that period of your life, because I think you're the heroes, people like you and the others in that town who tried, and you won't get any profit from it. The next group of people will get some profit out of it, and they'll be compensated, won't they? The, there'll be a more of a, a shared... Yeah, I, I think some of the models that are coming out now will spread the money that comes out of the turbines wider yeah. than it was. Yeah. We, we had a community fund set up, and the local government was going to take a fair say in where that money was spent. I would have liked to have seen more of that come back to, say, the community members mm. of uh, the wind farm. Not saying all of it shouldn't have gone to uh, local government to administer, but I think we should have been able to uh, have the authority to hand out more money locally than we ended up doing. I think that's part of negotiation, yeah. which may be easier if you're starting from scratch now than what it was then. Well, I've just been this morning to uh, outside the Victorian Parliament. They've just passed Climate Change Act, which is putting a lot more effort and money into clean energy, renewable energy of all sorts. And when New South Wales and New Queensland get that, that that's what they'll have to move to. If the yep. federal government doesn't move, the states will have to put the, you know, the encouragement, the incentive into it. I think you you will have been vindicated. You'll see that it will, will happen. It's just painfully slow, isn't it? And I think it's very valuable for us to hear what you've gone through because I always like to paint things as a rosy story, but they're not really that rosy. No, no, no. We were part of the... Um, no, I, I really think the, our wind farm 
if nothing changes in the near future as far as the technology is concerned, our farm potentially will be built, but it won't be uh, probably in my lifetime. And I think what has happened in recent years is battery technology has started to become a reality. Another 10 years down the track, it will be a reality. And I think the whole emphasis will then change. Just to finish, Paul, just to give the listeners an idea, what season are you up to in your farm? If you look out your window, what's happening? We're going, well, at present I'm, I'm shearing. We're into the middle of spring and uh, life is going on without the, the hope of having a, a wind farm. And I suppose my regret is that I'm getting older. My wife is also, her health is not what it used to be. So we are looking at uh, perhaps moving off the farm sometime uh, in the next few years. And I won't be able to hand it on to the next generation, which is what my hopes were. Oh, dear. Well, I don't know. I can't say anything encouraging after that. But thank you for talking to us. I think you've done us a service telling a wide audience, in the city especially, who have no idea really what goes on, how it is for you. Yeah, I, I think we're just a, a, well, I suppose all farmers hope for some miracle and um, the wind farm was uh, was, a, was going to be a miracle for us to uh, to look at passing something back and, and doing the land up to where I'd like to have left it. Yeah. So, uh, and regrettably, I'm not going to be able to do that. Uh, and I'll, I suppose I'll just wish it's one of the things we could have done. You um, never know what's around the corner, Paul. No, you never know. That's very true. Please <laughs> keep hoping for the miracles. Yes, we do. <laughs> thank you for talking to us. Okay, thank uh, you Good very luck. Much. Bye-bye. Thank you, Tom. Bye. Bye. Charlie Prell is a farmer at Crookwell in New South Wales, and he's a member of Farmers for Climate Action. You may remember we spoke to him about that some months back. He's also a member of the Australian Wind Alliance, and he's waited a long time like Paul Reardon, to get wind turbines on his farm. But at last, the Crookwell 2 project has begun, and I think they've started to put them up on his place. So welcome back to BZE, Charlie. What's happening at your place? Thank you, Vivian. It's nice to talk to you again. Um, They're actually constructing a wind farm on my place as we speak, which is so heartening and encouraging for me personally, but... For the district as well, it's just so. I've been waiting. I've been waiting 17 years for this for this wind farm to begin construction, and at last that day has come. Uh, it's really pleasing to see the the dirt being disturbed and the footings being dug and the foundations being poured in expectation of getting some wind turbines on my land. Okay. Well, uh, how many turbines uh, are going to be in the wind farm? at Crookwell too, and how many are on your place and other people's places? There's 28 turbines altogether in the project, 28 3.4 megawatt uh, general electric turbines, and they're scattered over three properties, so myself and two of my neighbours, roughly evenly, we're not exactly sure yet uh, how many each of us are going to get, but so nine, nine each, roughly yep. nine. Yeah, now I believe the ACT governments had a, a role in this. Can you explain how they benefit? This, this wind farm would not be being built without the support of the ACT government's reverse option scheme. We were luckily the last winning tenderer for their third reverse option. The ACT residents will benefit from this wind farm by having 100% renewable energy beginning probably in about mid-2019. And that the cost of that electricity is locked in for 20 years. Yeah. So they, they're going to 
going to be getting their electricity for roughly 80 or 90 dollars a megawatt hour set no cpi no nothing for 20 Wow, so the government's new national energy guarantee, that really fulfills that, doesn't it? That's a guarantee that the price is, <laughs> the price is down and, and the reliability is there. Yeah, and I guess the, the message to the federal government is and they'll be using electricity from my wind farm in yes. Parliament House. Yeah, it will. The message, <laughs> hypocritical, but the message to them is you don't need coal-fired plants or gas plants or anything else to produce reliable oh, yeah. energy or something. I yeah. find what that is, but... Well, we have to look at it because I think the public is very... The public don't think about renewable as much as you do or even as I do, and they yeah. just hear about it occasionally and the government says, oh, we had a blackout in South Australia, and that just shows that the um, wind farms let South Australia down. And it's we know it's yeah. rubbish, but really it, it just... I think Paul Reardon said, you know, you throw some mud and it sticks, and that's the sort of yeah. perception we've got to fight against I think, them. I think, I think they had three blackouts last summer in South Australia. The obvious, the one that everybody knew about, when three tornadoes tore out something like 30 of the high-voltage transmission pylons, yeah. towers, but, but also two other minor events. In Crockwell, in July, I think, maybe August this year, we had a blackout that went for a day and a half, 18 hours. Oh, because the snow, we had a huge snowfall and the snow landed on power lines that brought the power lines down all over the shire and it took the energy distributors, the energy network um, owners, 18 hours, a day and a half to get the power back. Yeah. So South Australia's not the only place that has blackout. No, that's right. And, and it doesn't get any high, high profile at all, does it? If, no. That's right. No. So it's politicised. Look, I guess you don't have to do much once the wind turbines are up, but you've said that they'll be a game-changer on your farm. Tell us how that works. They already are um, in a whole number of ways, but the main way is through the lease payments that the wind farm company will pay me and my neighbours, and, and also they're paying people who are not associated with the wind turbines, so my two neighbours who are getting work turbines, but also neighbours of mine who are all farmers who won't host turbines are still getting a, a benefit sharing and neighbour agreement payment. That payment is not dependent on the weather or the sun or the rain or anything else. It's just dependent on us being hosts to wind turbines. And that agreement lasts for 25 years. There's potentially an option to renew it for a second 25 years. So, And, and I expect that option to be taken up. I, I've created a situation for me, my neighbours and my neighbours who don't host turbines, where we'll be getting a passive income stream that's not dependent on the weather. It'll outlive me. It'll be my... The next generation will be still benefiting from these turbines. That mm. gives you an extra level of resilience and uh, economic flexibility as a farmer to combat droughts, floods, uh, fluctuating commodity prices, whatever else it may be. So it, it's actually putting me in a position where I'm 100% sustainable into the future. Well, you mentioned the neighbours, and I think the company is called Global Power Gen, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, how have they negotiated with the neighbours to square it with them and make them happy about it? They've offered uh, my neighbours an agreement based on the number of turbines that are within, pretty sure it's two kilometres of their residence. I understand it's reasonably lucrative. That's, a, that's something that the Wind Alliance have been promoting very strongly. It's also yeah. something the ACT government have been promoting very strongly. Yeah. And it, it's becoming the norm in the wind industry, which is fantastic. I think it should have been that way from the start. In fact, it could have been that way from the start if we'd had decent community leadership 
um, but we didn't, and we didn't have any support from our federal or state, uh, they're both Liberal Party people, members of parliament. In fact, my, both of those people, my state and my federal member of parliament, were both standing on Black Mountain, I think it was, in Canberra, when the ACT government announced the results of this auction, saying we don't want those turbines in our electorate. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How stupid is that? And, yeah. and I know, because there's every poll that's been done in this area, and, and generally, the vast majority of people are in favour of turbines. There is a little bit of jealousy created around turbines from people that are not part of the project, but with this no-benefit sharing agreement, that, that also is taken out of the equation. The vast majority of the, of the population are in favour of them. On our wind farm, right now, there are at least 100, if not more, local people who are employed full-time, probably for 12 to 18 months, building this wind farm. And each turbine will be generating money for the community. I think you've got something That's called right. the Enhancement Fund. How does that work? Yeah, there's a thing called Community Enhancement Fund. So $2,500 per turbine per year is contributed to a community enhancement fund, which is distributed by the local council to worthy recipients. I'm very happy to report on this story because it contrasts with Paul Reardon's story where, the, you know, five years ago I interviewed him and it was all looking yeah. hopeful, but really yeah. the anti-wind people seem to have gone in there in a big way and yeah. that's happened in other parts of Australia too. And and yeah. the people in the city don't know that and I had a feeling yeah. that really the wind anti-wind people could bus in their supporters. I really wished... The pro-wind people could have bust in a few people from the city like me. I would have gone, you know, because yeah, yeah. they get it about climate change. And that's maybe not such a popular topic to talk about, but climate change is pressing down on us, very urgent. And I'd like to know what... I'm still incredibly impatient with the amount of wind uh, wind and solar energy that we've got. I think Andrew told me it's 5 or 6%. Uh, yeah. of our energy is supplied yeah, by right. renewables or yeah. by wind. I can't remember which one he told me, but it's a small amount. And we, we've got, as yeah. he told us, a fabulous resource. We really do have a fabulous resource. And we're not like an overpopulated country like Europe, you know, where there's little villages everywhere. Here we have a lot of land where yeah. it's not really con conflicting with um, and, and urban... As a, as a continent, we have the best solar and the best wind resource on this planet. Mm. And we're not taking advantage of it. No. That's really sad, but I, I can assure you there was plenty of um, hard times over the last 17 years for me as well and lots of other people in this area. Yeah. Some of it was pretty nasty from the opposition to wind turbines, but I'm sitting in Crookville today on the 1st of November and it's over 30 degrees. Now, that is not normal and I, I don't care what people say. It might, it's a hot day, but we've had two or three days in Sydney last this week, earlier this week, at 35 degrees in October. Um, climate change is real, and farmers are at the front line of climate change. It, that's, a, that's a frightening prospect, but if we do get the rollout of renewables right, then there's an opportunity for farmers, either through hosting wind turbines or solar panels, to actually be beneficiaries of the solution to climate change, as, as well as being in the front line and, and ensuring them against the the vagaries of the weather. Do you have anything to say to the government? Like, what would be the biggest demand you'd have? Is it a carbon tax? Is it renewable well, no, energy no. target or what? The, the best thing the government could do is just get out of the way. <laughs> You're not the first proved... person who's told me that. I know. It's, a, it's really unfortunate. This current Conservative government is supposed to be run by uh, business people, professional business people. I would hate to see how they run their businesses because the way they've run the energy system in this country for the last, what is it, four years or something, 
is just beyond belief. Tony Abbott, when he was elected as Prime Minister, absolutely deliberately destroyed or tried to destroy every piece of renewable uh, incentive that the, the Gillard government set up. And, and that wasn't an act of circumstance. That was a deliberate tactic to, to get rid of the renewables. The Liberal Party and the National Party particularly, who are supposed to represent farmers, the National Party actually hold the balance of power right now, as Barnaby Joyce said the other day before he had to go and stand for re-election. We need representation from those conservative politicians that actually represents us as re re regional rural people, not uh, coal mining and, and yeah. uh, fossil fuel companies. And, and it's just missing. It's, it's a consequence of money, I think. Okay. Uh, financial contributions to, to, to the parties yeah. and, and spin. But they're backing the wrong horse, aren't they? They're putting their well, donations in the wrong pockets. I, I know, but we just have to make sure that horse doesn't drown before we, <laughs> before we get to the other side of the river because we, we're going to get to the other side of the river. All businesses around the planet, but in Australia as well, are saying what is going on. We need to get, get a, a secure energy policy so we can generate more electricity, we can break up the... Uh, well, this is not part of the debate, but we should be breaking up the cartel that are actually running our energy industry at the moment. I had a guy from Bangladesh speaking, and, and he's, yeah. he, he's a top climate scientist, and he's in Bangladesh, and they are really drowning. And he said, mm. look, I, I talk about climate criminals. I think we need the polluter must pay. And that's why yeah. I said carbon tax or something. We have to get some grip on, on them. They yeah. can't just yeah. run away with no, business that, as usual. That's exactly right, and, and this um, emissions reduction scheme is just yeah. a, it's a con. It's yeah. a way to put money into friends of theirs' pockets who are not doing anything to solve climate change. Okay, well, on that note, we'll leave it, but I'm just so pleased that the vision of your place with the workers there and the wind turbines coming up and you'll be generating energy for the ACT, and I yeah. hope there's more. There's a lot of wind resource in your area all along the uh, highlands there. I, I hope these, these wind farmers get a bit of a accelerated pace now because the, the people will get out of the way surely. And if we, if we get this right, Vivian, we can reinvigorate rural Australia for the next 40 or 50 years. So not everybody's going to want to live in Sydney and Melbourne. A lot of people don't want to live there now. No. Um, they can live all over regional Australia and benefit from this renewable boom that is unstoppable. That's just a matter of how long it's going to take to get there. Right. And with the high-speed rail, they'll be able to go <laughs> back and forth to Sydney and Melbourne whenever they like. <laughs> Thank you very much, Charlie. That's my pleasure. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Thanks to our guests, Andrew Bray, Paul Reardon, and Charlie Prowl, and of course, the beautiful genius Vivian Langford. I'm Andy, and if you'd like to get behind the wind and solar energy campaign as Yes to Renewables, get down to Friends of the Earth. That's 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. Thanks for joining us once again. We might go out on a track. This is Bird by Rose Turtle Ertler. <laughs>